Hello, and welcome to The Rounds Table, a weekly podcast about major new research in medicine hosted online at Healthy Debate. I'm your host, Amol Verma. I'm a resident in general internal medicine at the University of Toronto. And for a variety of predominantly March break related reasons, today it's just me and you. We are going to do something a little bit different. In case you couldn't tell off of the beginning, we didn't introduce two topics today. So instead, what I'm going to do is try something that uh, we've been contemplating doing for, for some time now, but have not yet done, which we're calling headlines and highlights. And so what we're going to do today is go through the latest episodes of several major scientific journals and go through every single one of the topics or new research articles that has been presented in those journals. I'm going to just give you the headline and the highlights of those studies, and we'll see if we can get through uh, several journals. So we're going to try to do JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association. We're going to try to do the Lancet, uh, Annals of Internal Medicine, and the New England Journal of Medicine. So why don't we dive right in? Uh, and then, of course, as always, at the end of the show, I'll do a good stuff recommendation. And for those of you who are sick of hearing just from me, I can promise you that we'll be back to our usual programming next week. Uh, since this is a bit of a departure from our usual format, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know if you liked it, if you thought that this was a, a useful thing to do. And if you'd want to hear this kind of thing again from time to time, uh, you can email me amol.a.verma at gmail.com or tweet me at amolaverma. Okay, so let's dive in. So the first journal we're going to summarize is JAMA. And this is their March 22nd slash 29th edition. So whenever I see a dual week edition, my my uh, suspicion is that the uh, editors at JAMA also took a little bit of time for March break. So the first paper that we're going to talk about uh, was titled The Effect of Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Versus Cognitive Behavioral Therapy or Usual Care on Back Pain and Functional Limitations in Adults with Chronic Low Back Pain. So this was a randomized clinical trial in Washington State of 342 adults who had chronic low back pain, and they were enrolled between September 2012, April 2014. The participants were randomly assigned to receive either mindfulness-based stress reduction, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, or usual care. Uh, and the mindfulness and cognitive behavioral sessions were delivered in eight uh, two-hour sessions that occurred every week. The primary outcomes were the percentage of participants who had a cleaning, clinically meaningful improvement in their functional limitations and in self-reported back pain. So the patients, there were 340. The mean age was 49 years. 65% of participants were women. And most of them, the mean duration of back pain was seven years. So chronic low back pain. And what they found was that mindfulness-based stress reduction and cognitive behavioral therapy were significantly better than usual care on both of their outcomes. So in those patients who received mindfulness or cognitive behavioral therapy, the functional outcome uh, was improved. So the clinically meaningful improvement, 60% had improvement in functional outcome in the mindfulness-based group and 57.7% in the cognitive behavioral therapy group, as opposed to 44% in the usual care group, uh, which was a statistically significant improvement. 
And in terms of pain improvement, 44% in both of the intervention groups uh, had improvement in their pain as opposed to 27% in the usual care group. So overall, uh, treatment with either mindfulness or cognitive behavioral therapy was helpful in improving function and reducing pain, but there was no difference between mindfulness and cognitive behavioral therapy. So the one-line editorial comment about that is this potentially opens up another avenue of options for patients who are seeking an alternative to their standard care for uh, lower back pain uh, and perhaps you know, cannot get in to see a cognitive behavioral therapist or, you know, it doesn't jive with them, but they're interested in pursuing a mindfulness-based approach, this is some strong evidence that that is indeed effective. Okay, so the next paper in JAMA's current issue is about benign biliary strictures. And this was a randomized trial of covered metallic stents compared with plastic stents. So the first-line treatment for benign biliary strictures is plastic stents, and they get placed endoscopically multiple stents in, a, in an attempt to bridge the stricture. These authors were investigating whether self-expanding metallic stents could require fewer procedures uh, to achieve resolution. So 100 patients, 112 patients to be precise, were randomized to either the plastic stents, multiple plastic stents, or a single expandable metal stent. And what they found was that the resolution rate of the biliary stricture was higher with the metal stent. So 93% of patients achieved resolution of their stricture as opposed to 85% in the plastic stent group. So that's a difference of 7%. And uh, they also required fewer procedures. So in the metal stent group, they needed just more than two uh, endoscopic procedures, ERCP procedures, as opposed to the plastic stents required just more than three. So this argument is that patients who have benign biliary strictures and some specific criteria about the size of their bile duct and whether the placement of the stent you know, would anatomically overlap the cystic duct and other structures. Assuming patients fit all those criteria, these metallic stents uh, were shown to be better than the uh, old plastic stents. One caveat about this trial is it was actually designed as a non-inferiority study. So even though the results of this study suggest that the metal stents are better, in fact, the you know, epidemiologically pure conclusion that we can draw here is that the metal stents were not inferior to the plastic stents after 12 months in achieving stricture resolution. Okay, that was a bit niche, I admit. Uh, so let's move on to their next topic, uh, which is an interesting question. It's a study that was about antibiotic exposure during the first six months of life and weight gain during childhood. So Early antibiotic exposure in uh, young infants has been associated with increased adiposity or weight gain in animal models, and the proposed mechanism is through alterations in the gut microbiome. And one of the editorial comments that uh, these authors make is that antibiotic exposure in infants is fairly common and often inappropriate. And so they conducted a retrospective longitudinal study 
in a network of 30 pediatric primary care practices uh, across Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and Delaware. They examined 38,500 singleton children and also a much smaller number of twin pairs to see if antibiotic exposure was significantly associated with either increased weight or decreased weight throughout life. And they found basically that there was no difference uh, with anti early antibiotic exposure, suggesting that you know maybe those alterations in gut microbiome are not as disruptive to uh, lifetime weight gain as initially thought. Uh, certainly, there are all sorts of other reasons why you would want to minimize inappropriate antibiotic prescribing in infants, but it seems like weight gain is not one of them. Okay, so that's the issue of the Journal of the American Medical Association. So let's uh, continue our tour of the world and move on to the United Kingdom and the Lancet's March 19th issue. So this issue is reporting several large randomized control trials. So the first one is about long-term therapy in prostate cancer. It was called the Stampede trial, and it was about adding docetaxel, zoledronic acid, or both to long-term hormonal therapy in patients with prostate cancer. So long-term hormone therapy is a standard of care for advanced prostate cancer, and it's been that way for a very long time. And this trial recruited just over 2,900 men who had high-risk, locally advanced, metastatic, or recurrent prostate cancer who are starting first-line long-term hormone therapy. And they tested whether it was better to add zoledronic acid, docetaxel, or the combination of the two to standard care versus standard care alone. The median follow-up in the study was about 43 months. And what they found was that zoledronic acid showed no evidence of survival improvement, and so it should not be part of standard care for this patient population. But interestingly, docetaxel chemotherapy, given at the time of long-term hormone therapy initiation, showed improved survival. So patients lived for 81 months as opposed to 71 months in the standard care arm. There was also what you would expect, which was an increase in adverse events. So of the patients who received chemotherapy, 52% suffered a, a major adverse event as opposed to 32% in the standard care group. The conclusion that these authors drew is that docetaxel treatment should become part of standard care for adequately fit men who are commencing long-term hormone therapy. So that seems like a very important finding for a fairly prevalent uh, condition. The next randomized trial is interesting for its uh, scientific implications, if not as interesting for its actual findings. So this was the CUPID-2 randomized trial, and it was about calcium upregulation through gene therapy in patients with heart disease. And this was a phase two multinational double-blind placebo control trial. So the rationale for this study is that there's an enzyme called sarcoplasmic endoplasmic reticulum calcium ATPase. Basically, this is a, a uh, protein whose activity is deficient in patients who have heart failure. And one of the theories postulates that correcting this abnormality by gene transfer might improve heart function. So these authors used a virus vector to introduce it 
a gene to try to improve the gene activity of this circa 2A gene in patients with heart failure. And so they enrolled high-risk ambulatory patients who had New York Heart Association class 2 to 4 symptoms of heart failure and a left ventricular ejection fraction of 35% or less. It could have been due to either ischemic or non-ischemic causes of heart failure. They enrolled 250 patients. Half received the gene and half received placebo. They followed these patients for 12 months and found no difference in either uh, recurrent heart failure events or in heart function. So results of the study were not uh, super exciting, uh, but of course, gene therapy is uh, very hot these days. What with the recent Gardner Award uh, presentations for the CRISPR gene, and if you haven't heard about CRISPR, then you haven't been paying attention to the popular science news. It's uh, all the rage. Um, and so, you know, this is the kind of trial that I think we're going to be seeing a lot more of. Encouragingly, there was not an increase in adverse events in the people who received gene therapy over the first 12 months, but uh, the therapy itself was not effective. Okay, the last two studies in this issue of The Lancet are two tuberculosis studies in sort of low and middle income countries. And they are based on the observation that HIV associated tuberculosis is difficult to diagnose and results in high mortality, uh, particularly mortality within the first six months after initiating antiretroviral therapy in patients with HIV is common in uh, resource limited settings. And one of the theories for this is uh, that undiagnosed tuberculosis in these patients results in uh, an immune reconstitution type response and patients who are started on their antiretrovirals end up doing worse. One of the reasons why TB is difficult to diagnose in HIV patients is that it is often present outside of the lungs. Uh, it can be difficult to obtain sputum uh, samples and when we do obtain sputum samples, they often don't contain the bacilli that we use, the acid-fast bacilli that are used to diagnose TB. And so it can be difficult to diagnose TB in these patients. So there were two randomized trials based upon this problem. The first was called the REMEMBER study, and it was of empiric TB therapy versus isoniazid in adult outpatients with HIV. It was an open-label randomized trial in HIV-positive outpatients who had a CD4 cell count of less than 50, so advanced HIV, and it was in 10 low- and middle-income countries. They enrolled 850 participants who were randomized to receive either empiric multidrug tuberculosis therapy as opposed to single-drug isoniazid uh, therapy, which we often use to treat latent tuberculosis. What they found was that the empirical tuberculosis therapy did not reduce mortality at 24 weeks compared to the isoniazid preventive therapy in older adults, but they also found that the mortality rates in the study overall were fairly low, leading them to recommend that isoniazid therapy at the initiation of HIV treatment in these resource-deprived uh, settings should be first line. The second randomized trial on this issue was looking at a point-of-care urine-based test to guide TB treatment. So, and this was in HIV-positive inpatients. 
So this was a pragmatic randomized trial in 10 hospitals in Africa. They enrolled 2,659 patients who were HIV positive adults with at least one of the following symptoms that might suggest underlying TB infection. So they needed to have either fever, cough, night sweats, or self-reported weight loss. And they also needed to be admitted to hospital. They assigned patients to either receive this spot urine test, which was called LAM, with the usual routine workup, as opposed to just routine diagnostic tests alone. What they found was that eight-week mortality was 21% in the group that received the urine test and 25% in the group that did not receive the urine test, which is an absolute reduction of 4% and a number needed to treat of 25, suggesting that perhaps this uh, random urine test to detect TB is useful and has mortality benefit in guiding TB therapy. Okay, so two interesting approaches to the same difficult problem there. Uh, and that wraps up the Lancet's issue for this week. So let's uh, take our transatlantic voyage back to uh, the United States and look at the Annals of Internal Medicine's March 15th edition. And given that it's been almost 10 days between March 15th and the next edition of the Annals of Internal Medicine, I again believe that our Annals editors have taken themselves a bit of a March break. And who can blame them, really? It takes a lot to have the kind of dedication that we do ha here at the Rounds Table to put out a weekly episode, you know. Okay, so... Um, Coming back to their, their studies for this week, the first thing that they report are the results of a study looking at transcatheter aortic valve replacement and specifically looking at gender differences. As you might recall, the rounds table covered transcatheter aortic valve replacements or endovascular valve replacement procedures, and we looked specifically at a study uh, that showed good outcomes in older patients. And if you don't remember that, then you may want to dig back into our archives and, and have a listen. This study examined sex differences in one of the largest randomized control trials of uh, transcatheter aortic valve uh, replacements, also known as TAVIs. Um, and that was the partner randomized control trial. So in that trial, there were 1,220 women and 1,339 men. We know that Female sex is associated with poorer outcomes after surgical aortic valve replacement, and so these authors wanted to know if the same relationship held true in TAVIs. What they found, actually somewhat counterintuitively, is that women had more vascular complications, so they did have more complications around the time of the procedure. 17% versus 10% had vascular complications, and they had more bleeding, 10.5% versus 7.7% in men. But women actually had lower one-year all-cause mortality in the study. So their all-cause mortality at one year was 19% as opposed to 25.9% in men, which is the opposite of what we see in the surgical aortic valve replacements. The explanations for these findings are still a little bit theoretical, but prior studies have shown systematically that women having transcatheter procedures have a greater propensity for bleeding events and vascular complications than men who have the same procedures. The main 
postulated mechanism for this is anatomical factors such as smaller body area, smaller caliber blood vessels, and some possible hormonal influences on vascular biology could be associated with these uh, procedural complications. In terms of why there was a mortality benefit, uh, this again is a little bit unclear. Now there were baseline differences in the two between men and women in their comorbidities. So men tended to have more comorbid conditions. And so it's possible that the difference in mortality is predominantly just driven by differences in baseline risk. Uh, you know, we know that women tend to live longer than men. So the comparison may not be specifically related to the transcatheter procedure. Now, some specific explanations for why the, the TAVI uh, might have done better in women. Uh, in the partner study, women had smaller valve areas. They had better ejection fractions before the procedure. They had less aortic regurgitation after the procedure, suggesting that maybe they had better uh, hemodynamics and that could be associated with better outcomes. Also, we know that compared with men, women who have aortic stenosis have less remodeling of the heart before the procedure. So they have less cardiac fibrosis and they tend to have better uh, left ventricular remodeling or improvement after the surgical aortic valve replacement. So it's possible that again, their, their hearts just recover faster after these procedures as well. So that's a cohort study using existing randomized trial data uh, reporting on a difference uh, between men and women and showing that unlike with surgical aortic valve replacement, women actually have better one-year mortality than men when they get the transcatheter replacement. The second study in annals is about financial incentives for physical activity, and this was a randomized control trial. So there are different ways to frame financial incentives. And this study tested three strategies in 281 adult employees who were overweight or obese. So they conducted a 13-week intervention, and the goal was for participants to take 7,000 steps per day. Participants were randomly assigned to a control group in which they received daily feedback from their pedometer saying how many steps they had per day or three financial incentive programs. So the three programs was a gain incentive, which means you received $1.40 each day that you achieved your goal, a lottery incentive. So for every time you achieved your goal, you were enrolled in a lottery uh, and you could potentially win. And the expected value was basically the same. So about you had the value of about $1.40 per day but it was a lottery incentive or a loss incentive. So they gave you all of the money for the month up front, and each day that you did not achieve your goal, they removed $1.40. So now I'll give you a second to think about that and see which of those do you think you would find most compelling. Would you rather receive the money? Would you rather not have money taken away from you? Or would you rather be enrolled in a lottery? And what they found was that the loss incentive was the most powerful. And I think, you know, intuitively that makes sense. Like no one wants to have money taken away from them. Perhaps this is why taxes are so painful. Uh, but the loss incentive found that 45% of participant days achieved their goal. 
So participants achieve their goal 45% of the time, as opposed to 35% of the time in the gain incentive, 36% in the lottery incentive, and 30% in the control group. So this has some uh, grounding in behavioral economic theory uh, and is consistent with what we would expect and I think consistent with our own gut instinct on these things uh, and has some implications for if we do start introducing financial incentives to modify behavior or nudge people's behavior towards more healthier uh, uh, practices. Okay, the final study in annals uh, was about the patient-centered medical home and associations with healthcare quality and utilization. So this is a very American uh, study, but it has some implications around the world. So the patient-centered medical home is a model of uh, primary and integrated care. The philosophy of this model is that you shift the responsibility of care away from individual physicians to teams of providers, including you know health coaches and uh, other allied health professionals, and the focus shifts away from acute illness to emphasizing chronic disease management and away from a single site of care to coordinated care across multiple settings, uh, which is all integrated on an electronic platform. And the notion is that, you know, you could identify uh, individuals who are at risk of having a complication. You could intervene early, try to prevent uh, acute illnesses, try to uh, prevent deteriorations of chronic disease. It's kind of all falls under this uh, grab bag term of population health management. And so an example of this is, let's say you have a, a, a number of patients who are at high risk because they have chronic diseases like heart failure, and uh, the team, the care providing team has a dashboard of how often they see those patients. And if someone hasn't shown up for a recent amount of time, they get flagged, someone reaches out to them. You know, it's this notion of a very dynamic and integrated care model. This model has become fairly widely disseminated in the United States, and there have been changes in physician reimbursement to try to uh, encourage or incentivize these kinds of team-based models of care. But the evidence for their usefulness and effectiveness are actually not particularly strong. So this was a prospective cohort study from 2008 to 2012 uh, in the Hudson Valley, which is a, a multi-payer, multi-provider region in New York, and it included 438 primary care physicians in 226 practices with you know, over 100,000 patients across five health plans. Basically, they found that patients who had a patient-centered medical home had modest changes in healthcare utilization and similar quality of care compared with uh, the other types of care, which just used electronic health records or even paper records. For example, hospitalizations decreased in the patient-centered medical home group uh, with a relative reduction of about 21%. But Emergency department visits in the patient-centered medical home group increased um, to 16.7 per 100 patients as opposed to 14.3 per 100 patients. Uh, so, you know, roughly three per 100 patients increase in ED visits, but a reduction in uh, hospitalizations. 
So the overall conclusion, and they looked at a variety of utilization metrics, said basically that there were some modest changes in most of the utilization measures leading towards a modest reduction in healthcare utilization, uh, but no real changes in healthcare quality. So, you know, I think this fits with the existing literature around some of these new models in care, like the accountable care organizations, which is that as much as these seem to have received a lot of attention and a lot of hype and, you know, we, what the missing piece here is really patient satisfaction and whether, you know, uh, uh, people prefer to be in these types of environments and provider satisfaction, whether people prefer to work in these kinds of environments. But, uh, on the utilization front, it seems like there's generally modest improvements in healthcare utilization from these models. So certainly they, they are not a silver bullet or a, a complete panacea for some of the challenges facing healthcare delivery today. Okay, and last but not least, we end our transatlantic tour of uh, the medical literature in Boston with the New England Journal of Medicine. So the March 24th edition of the New England Journal of Medicine had several uh, interesting research papers. The first one is Actually, the first two are, are really about children, and so we'll talk about them in a little bit less depth uh, because we're predominantly adult-focused in this podcast. Um, so the first study was one of early versus late parenteral nutrition in critically ill children. So recent trials that uh, have been published in adults have questioned the benefit of early parenteral nutrition in adults uh, who are critically ill. Uh, but this question hasn't been examined in critically ill children. So these investigators conducted a multi-center randomized trial of 1,440 critically ill children to study whether it was superior to give parenteral nutrition for critically ill patients early, so within 24 hours of their ICU admission, or late, uh, wait one week and give parenteral nutrition after one week. Their two primary endpoints were new infections acquired during the ICU stay and uh, duration of ICU dependency, which was a sort of a, a bit of a composite measure, but really about length of stay in the ICU and overall uh, time spent in the ICU. What they found was that in critically ill children, it was better to withhold parenteral nutrition for one week uh, rather than providing it early. So mortality was similar between the two groups, but the rate of patients with a new infection was just 11% in the group receiving the late parenteral nutrition, as opposed to almost 19% in the group receiving the early parenteral nutrition. So more infections, which I suppose is not surprising because you probably have more central lines or more lines to try to give this parenteral nutrition. They also found that this was associated with increased length of stay in the ICU. So the mean duration of ICU stay was more than nine days in the early group, as opposed to six and a half days in the late group. So overall, the conclusion from this study is better to wait for parenteral nutrition uh, than to give it early in critically ill children. The second paper in the New England Journal is about dengue infection in children in 10 Asian and Latin American countries. So there was recently two large phase three trials of dengue vaccine, 
which for their control groups, therefore had two large cohorts of patients who were followed up for dengue infection. And that allowed these authors to give us some information about what dengue infection is like in uh, children and its burden of disease and uh, how often it caused symptoms. So uh, this is an important epidemiologic analysis of an important disease entity. Uh, and this was 10 countries in Southeast Asia and Latin America where dengue is endemic. The randomized trials enrolled patients who were healthy children between 2 and 14 years of age uh, in Southeast Asia and between 9 and 16 years of age in Latin America. And the rationale for this is basically they picked the populations of people who had high incidence of dengue disease in those countries and uh, so that they could conduct this randomized trial about dengue vaccine. All of the patients were followed for acute febrile illness, and they were all tested for dengue virus. In total, the study included just over 10,000 children. What they found was that approximately 10% of the febrile episodes in each cohort were confirmed to be dengue virus infection. So that's pretty uh, high rate of, uh, of illness. They found that the incidence of dengue hemorrhagic fever, so the most extreme manifestation of dengue virus infection, the dreaded uh, hemorrhagic fever, uh, was actually quite low. So less than 0.3 episodes per 100 person years. Uh, so fairly low, although the, the rate of dengue virus infection was quite high, uh, the actual incidence of this severe manifestation of the illness is quite low. About 20% uh, of uh, the children required hospitalization in the Asian cohort, and about 10% required hospitalization in the Latin American cohort, perhaps reflecting the age differences between the groups. Uh, and they found that the burdens varied widely according to each country in terms of the rates of the illness, but that the rates were generally higher and the disease was generally more severe in Asian countries than Latin American countries. So that gives us some useful epidemiologic information about an important tropical illness. The next study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine now changes gears completely. So we talked about two uh, uh, studies about children, and now we're going to talk about some um, adult illnesses. So the first paper is a multicenter observational study of incretin-based drugs and heart failure. So there's concern that the anti-diabetic incretin-based drugs, so this is the DPP-4 inhibitors or the GLP-1 analogs, so the uh, classic examples of those would be of the DPP-1 inhibitors. These are the gliptins, the cetagliptin, lenagliptin, saxagliptin, and the GLP-1 analogs we're talking about uh, liraglutide, for example. So there was concern that those medications might increase the risk of heart failure. These authors used healthcare data from four Canadian provinces, the United States and the United Kingdom, to pull together multiple cohorts of patients with diabetes. And they conducted a case control analysis of all of the patients who were hospitalized for heart failure uh, with 20 controls from the same cohort and they looked to see if there was an association between exposure to these incretin drugs and heart failure. There were almost one and a half million patients in this sample and nearly 30,000 hospitalizations for heart failure. And basically what they found is that the rate of hospitalization for heart failure did not increase with the use of incretin-based drugs. 
suggesting that they are safe from that point of view. So as these drugs are commonly being used in practice, this is a helpful piece of information about the safety of these medications as pertains to heart failure. Okay, the last two papers we are going to talk about in the New England Journal are uh, a set of paired studies. And these were two groups who identified a genetic variation that is associated with coronary artery disease. So bear with me, it gets a little, we, we're going to dive into the genetic weeds, uh, but it's really interesting. So the rationale for these two studies, so these were two studies about the ANGPTL4 gene and protein. Okay, so the rationale for these studies is that we know that LDL cholesterol is associated with increased risk of coronary artery disease. This has been demonstrated time and again. But what's less well known is whether triglyceride levels and HDL cholesterol also carry an increased risk of coronary artery disease. And it has been still a controversial topic, although most clinicians, I think, would assume that they do. The evidence isn't very strong. So these two groups of scientists found a genetic mechanism to explain the relationship between hypertriglyceridemia, low HDL, and risk of coronary artery disease. And it's really important because it establishes this link, which is helpful. And it also raises some possible targets for potential future therapy. This all centers around a protein currently helpfully titled, uh, the gene is helpfully called ANGPTL4. I, I can't even come up with like a catchy way to say that. So we're just going to have to muddle our way through or else I'm just going to call it the gene or the protein. Okay. So this protein is an inhibitor of lipoprotein lipase, which is the enzyme that breaks down triglycerides um, in the capillaries in heart, muscle, and fat. So there's a lot of research showing that this gene helps process triglycerides and so these two groups of scientists tested many variants of this gene in thousands of patients. And what they found was that people who had mutations, specific loss of function mutations in this gene, so that means that this gene is therefore no longer able to inhibit lipoprotein lipase, which makes lipoprotein lipase more active. And remember, lipoprotein lipase processes and breaks down triglycerides. So they found people who had these mutations had lower levels of triglycerides and higher levels of HDL cholesterol and lower levels of coronary artery disease. Okay, so was that clear? There's a mutation in this gene which is associated with lower triglycerides, higher HDL, and therefore less coronary artery disease which supports the hypothesis that most clinicians already were operating under, which is the assumption that triglycerides are bad for coronary artery disease and HDL is good for coronary artery disease. And this links all of those things together through a genetic mechanism. Now, these findings at least suggest that perhaps if we can inactivate this gene in other people, maybe we can lower their levels of triglyceride, raise their levels of HDL, and reduce coronary artery disease. But, and here's the big caveat, 
there is conflicting evidence about whether targeting this gene is actually going to be beneficial. So in two previous studies in mice, uh, when they inactivated this gene, and then those mice were fed a diet that was high in saturated fat, the mice ultimately developed a lethal triglyceride ascites, which is pretty terrifying. Uh, and there have been some similar compl complications associated with lymph node inflammation in mice and monkeys that received this anti these sort of targeted therapies against this uh, protein. So we're a long way away from any therapies based on this gene. But the really important first finding is that this does help link non-LDL cholesterol levels to coronary artery disease. Uh, and uh, so it's a, it's a very important discovery and possibly could lead to some uh, therapeutic interventions, though uh, lethal triglyceride-based ascites or chylus ascites is enough to scare me away from this topic for the time being. Okay, so that's it. We did four journals. We covered it all. It's been maybe more than 35 or 40 minutes. So if you're still with me, uh, let me know if you thought this was worthwhile uh, or if we should just never do this again and go back to the way we always do things at the rounds table. Let's wrap things up with a good stuff segment because who wants to end the episode on the note of lethal triglyceride ascites? Let's uh, talk about something a little bit more interesting or at least if not more interesting, perhaps a little bit less terrifying. So I came across an article in The Atlantic called when Doctors Should Say, I Don't Know. So this is a conversation between Julie Beck, who is a health reporter for The Atlantic, and Stephen Hatch, who is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Massachusetts Medical School, and who recently wrote a book called Snowball in a Blizzard, A Physician's Notes on Uncertainty in Medicine. So the article begins with the premise or the observation that although doctors' tools, knowledge, and treatments have improved, and we can now scan all sorts of body parts and analyze all sorts of things. Uh, and this is a quote from Stephen Hatch, precision is not the same thing as certainty. And I think this is a really good article for uh, lay, the lay public about a lot of things that, th that many of us clinicians have a lot of unease about. So the, the article talks about how medicine is a high stakes games, uh, game of uncertainty. Uh, and it's complicated by the fact that people naturally want certainty, especially whenever there is some kind of like existential threat involved. And one of the risks of that is that in the search for certainty, and because it's certainty is so reassuring, sometimes we just gloss over the risks of treatment, the dubiousness of a diagnosis, the imprecision in a prognosis, uh, just for the sake of having an answer. And so this uh, uh, article actually is a, is a really nice wide-ranging discussion. They talk about how we present probabilities to patients uh, or to the general public and the difference between relative risk and absolute risk and how this can bias people's thinking. They talk about uh, predictive value of tests and false positives and false negatives and how this is affected by the incidence of, of a disease within a population. They talk about how medical guidelines get perceived frequently as rules 
instead of recommendations. They talk about how alternative medicine approaches can be more appealing because they offer certainty and also because they sometimes offer sympathy that is lacking in the traditional uh, medical model of care. So I thought it was a really nice article. It's worth reading. Um, and I think it's really great for sharing with uh, some patients and our, and our uh, non-clinical f- uh, community uh, because it really, I think, highlights a lot of really important limitations of the current way we practice medicine day to day. Okay, friends, that's it for this week. Have a great week. Uh, I hope you too enjoyed a refreshing March break. And we will be back with our regularly scheduled programming uh, next week. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash the rounds table. Follow us on Twitter at rounds table or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash rounds table podcast. Thanks for listening.